Hi and welcome uh, to this program. This program we will speak in English. Uh, we have a very special guest that we already also have in the past, and I'm very happy that uh, he can return to our uh, channel. Uh, the, the guest is E. Michael Jones, mm. uh, a writer, thinker, and uh, he's the author of, of many books. But today we will speak of one of his, the latest book that he has published. The name of the book is The Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. And that, that is a really, uh, uh, how to say, uh, a fascinating topic. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm more fascinated by the subtitle uh, because I think it's... Uh, can you uh, explain me why? Because we, we talked about this book before, uh, but the book was not yet released. Uh, so why you, uh, you, you have the, the, the necessity of, of writing such a book? Well, uh, uh, this is in many ways the sequel to Logos Rising because beauty is a transcendental. And beauty uh, uh, is a description of uh, being and being uh, as God is uh, the, the other transcendentals are the true and the good. So the good is the moral law, how you achieve the good through action. The, the true is how you understand uh, being through the intellect. Uh, but you can apprehend being. You can apprehend being through beauty. And oftentimes in human history, you have a situation where the artist can portray what the philosopher cannot explain. Uh, and, and so, the, the, the in many ways, this is uh, the beginning of the story is mimesis. Art is mimesis, art is imitation of nature. That's what Aristotle said. Uh, that's all it's ever been, that's all it will ever be. But what changes over the course of history is our understanding of nature. And so in the beginning, you have caves in Altamira in Spain where they paint buffaloes on the ceiling. You have little uh, figurines of uh, Venus, like the Willensdorf Venus. Uh, and then uh, eventually you end up uh, in Greece where you have an understanding of nature uh, that uh, we got basically from Plato which is that basically nature is divided into two realms. There is the realm of ideas or forms, which never changes, and, and that's perfectly comprehensible up there. Uh, but then you have the, the world of experience, which is nothing but meaningless flux, uh, which you cannot describe in any meaningful fashion. So art in this regard, imitation of nature, means basically imposing the forms that you can derive from the realm of forms. So let's say the, uh, the circle, a geometrical figure like the circle, and you pose that on a piece of stone and you can have a column. And then you uh, create the rectangle, you impose that on a piece of stone, and then you have uh, a beam and you put that on top of two columns or more. And then you have a triangle and then you impose that on the, uh, on stone, you put that on top of the rectangle and you put these together and you have a temple, you have a Greek temple. And this is where people worship God because God is a, in the, that realm of forms, uh, has something to do with that. Now that, that had such a powerful effect 
on the world, it's it almost never changed. And in many ways, it it didn't change. In many ways, there are a lot of people who are still Platonists. Uh, but it did change, and it changed because of Christianity. And the main uh, idea from Christianity was that God created heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. This is the beginning of the Hebrew scripture. It's the beginning of Genesis. And it, it's completely new. It would be completely new to Plato and Aristotle, who believed that the world was eternal. Now, uh, once you have God as the creator, you have God as an artist. He is an artist. And the universe becomes a work of art. And this means if you look at the universe, you will be able to discern logos. That's something that Plato never understood. He, he just didn't understand that. But now you have Christianity taking root in a place like Italy, which is where the story really begins, because this is where the story of art starts to develop. And you have a, a great thinker like Thomas Aquinas, who basically understands what I just said about creation and how it completely revises our understanding of nature. And so he comes up with a formulation in his essay on being, which is the exact opposite of what I just said about Plato. So art for Plato is imposing the form, it's imposing the essence on existence. And now Aquinas reverses that and says, no, existence calls forth essence. The existence, existence is the source of the form, not the other way around. And the first man who understood that in some sense, or let's put it this way, the first person who implemented that idea was Giotto. And Giotto, uh, uh, according to Vasari, who is the chronicler of the Renaissance art, Giotto broke with Greek models. Now, the main Greek model that he broke with was the icon, which is uh, basically you have a, a, a sacred figure, our Lord or the Blessed Mother or something like that, a gold background because gold is eternal and it never changes. And uh, that's it. That's it. And what Giotto understood and implemented was the idea that the world is creation. And so the world, we need to situate this drama, this theological drama in the real world. And so you have the paintings on the wall of the Arena Chapel, which now portray scenes from the gospel situated in the real world. So now you have the ability, a breakthrough in mimesis, because now we're portraying, we're imitating nature as we see it, rather than as Plato imagined it. And we're putting the gospel in the real world now. So now you have uh, like a parable of, let's say, uh, Christ asleep in the boat. Well, this is dramatized in this painting by Giotto, because now you have the, the disciples, you can look at their faces, and they're upset. It's at the moment when they go to Jesus Christ and they say, don't you care that we're all going to die? Well, that was a, there was a face there. They were looking at that and you understood this. You could relate to the gospel in a completely new way because of this tremendous breakthrough in Mimesis, which took place in Italy and continued for centuries after Giotto. So uh, I want to interrupt you for, because uh, you, uh, what you say uh, 
give me uh, 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 many questions to to ask. Okay. Uh, the first the first question that I want to ask is uh, you mentioned about uh, um, icons uh, and uh, you speak about Giotto and the change he, he, he makes from the icons to a more, we call it westernized art, even if I don't like this kind of term. But in any case, uh, what I, I want to ask you, you know that in many Catholics uh, uh, churches or, or other settings, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, people that... Uh, you know, put many icons, uh, you know, or, what do you think about, about this? So that uh, the, the icons substitute in a certain way the, the, the Catholic art that uh, we were accustomed. What, what is your... Uh, you mean now? You mean now there's a revival of the icon now? Yes, yes. At okay. least uh, I, I see here I, in Italy. I, I, look, I gave this talk to a bunch of Orthodox uh, and uh, the Orthodox still use the icon. They never stopped using the icon. And uh, the Orthodox people in that audience were all former Protestants or, or nothing. Uh, and some of them may have been former Catholics, but the majority of those people were former Protestants. And what you're seeing here is a reaction to the collapse of Protestantism. And there is an attempt now, uh, it's in Catholic circles as well, largely around the, uh, the Latin mass, of returning to a, a static form uh, because we like the stability that these static forms provide. So in an, in an era of insecurity, you will naturally see a return to something that is more static because uh, that calms the insecurity that people feel right now when we seem to be sailing on uncharted waters. Uh, another question is this: What uh, if you have any feedback from uh, uh, philosophers or uh, uh, art historians, uh, expert on aesthetics? Uh, uh, do you have any uh, feedback about the the thesis of of your book? No, none whatsoever, because I am a bad person. Uh, and the, the taboo culture that we live in means if you associate with a prostitute or a tax collector, and I am far worse than a prostitute or a tax collector, you will become unclean. So the ac academy will not deal with what I'm saying. Now, I, I'm, I, I'd like to say this is tragic in a way because there is a serious academic discussion that needs to take place in aesthetics right now. Uh, Etienne Gilson wrote, a, he's the most famous Thomist of the 20th century, and he wrote a book on aesthetics that has nothing to do with Thomism. Etienne Gilson is a Platonist. Now, when I discovered this, I was shocked. And I immediately wanted to call up uh, Ralph McInerney, who was the head of the Medieval Institute uh, at Notre Dame University, but uh, he's dead. And I don't know who else to talk to. Because that generation, he knew Jacques Maritain, he knew Etienne Gilson, he was a direct link between me and the great Thomists of the 20th century, and he didn't quite understand that, that they were Thomists. This was a shock, came to me. It's something that should be discussed in academic circles, but given the way academic circles are now, it's not going to be discussed. The only man who got it right was Umberto Eco. Mm. And he's not, he's known over here as a novelist rather than an aesthetician. 
But indeed, uh, it is very interesting that you quote Umberto Eco. That uh, I read uh, several of his books, and I also read his books on uh, the medieval aesthetics. Uh, but he was uh, not at all a, a religious person, as you know. He was religious when he was young. Indeed, he, he studied Thomas Aquinas, Saint Thomas Aquinas. He he did his thesis on Saint Thomas Aquinas, but then he became. Uh, an an atheist, uh, right. really. Uh, right. So, uh, how you reconcile your own uh, uh, belief uh, with uh, um, uh, your admiration for Umberto Eco? I, I have to say first that I also admire him for certain things because he is a very brilliant mind. Uh, he was a very brilliant mind. Yeah. But uh, of course, I know of the dangers of Umberto Eco. To, to, to quote uh, the title of your book. So yes, how uh, you reconcile? Yeah, I'm not recommending Foucault's Pendulum or the, uh, the Name of the Rose or something like that, but he never forgot his Thomism. <laughs> it's obvious when you read his book on aesthetics. He clearly understood, better than Gilson and better than Maritain, that there was a, a kind of Copernican revolution <laughs> in aesthetics that had been prepared for by Thomas Aquinas' treatise on being. He knew that. He understood it. He said, uh, there, I have a, I, uh, we should have the picture up here, but it's a, uh, I use it in this slide presentation I give. It's a medieval illustration from a book that was contemporaneous with Giotto, but obviously, this is France. Uh, France did, was not as advanced as Italy in terms of the visual arts at this point. And it's basically a book. There, there is a, a circle. And that is the world, and it's also the Garden of Eden. And then you have the story of Adam and Eve with, like, stickers stuck mm. on this circle. Well, there's no integration of the story and the geometric form. There's no integration here. They're completely different. And obviously, they never got the memo from Giotto. This is precisely the great achievement that Giotto uh, created, and it hadn't reached France at this point. Um, I, I want to touch on uh, another point that I think is very important, uh, and it is especially for me. So what are, uh, how your ideas um, can be related to sacred art in the liturgy? So how your ideas uh, read the situation of sacred art in the liturgy nowadays? Well, we have a crisis in the liturgy right now. Uh, it's, it's been building for a long time. You had the post-Vatican II period where uh, the, basically the, the reform of the liturgy ended up in the hands of a, a, a bishop by the name of Rembert Weekland, uh, yeah, yeah. who was also an abbot, uh, who studied music at the Juilliard School. So he was certainly qualified for the job but he was a homosexual yeah, and he could never overcome his homosexuality. Uh, obviously he, he ha ended up uh, paying a bribe uh, to uh, blackmail to a homosexual yeah. in, uh, in Milwaukee where he was uh, archbishop. And, and uh, what, what, what was very said that he paid with the, with the diocese. That's right. Money. He paid with diocese and money. Okay. He yeah. Rembert Weekland, was a homosexual who hated beauty. And the proof of that was came when he decided to renovate the cathedral in Milwaukee. There was a beautiful uh, marble baldacchino 
and he announced plans. He was going to blow it up. I mean, literally with dynamite and the entire uh, arts establishment in Milwaukee pleaded with Rembrandt Wickham, please don't do this. This is part of our cultural patrimony. Please don't do it. And he blew it up because he was a homosexual and because homosexual, homosexual hates the good, the true, and the beautiful because his deeds are wicked. So that created a crisis. He's a, the author of the Hootenanny Mass, which is basically uh, 1960s folk music, uh, type melodies played on guitars that disrupted the continuity of sacred music. So if we want to get back to, we have to get back to where we left off with uh, appropriate, sacred music, which is appropriate to uh, the liturgy. The best guideline I know of is Pius X's motu proprio on sacred music. Very, 1903. Right. He's a very sophisticated, uh, uh, an Italian who understands Italian art, who breathes uh, part of his culture. He understands that Verdi is great music, but it's not appropriate to the mass. All these yeah, elaborate yeah. Uh, masses by Mozart, you know, they're great concert pieces, but it's not really appropriate to the mass. At the same time, he talks about instruments. Uh, for example, the drum is not appropriate to the mass. Now, I knew... Uh, Father Robert Scaris, who was the head of the yeah. Instituto Pontificio di Musica Sacra he, in he Rome. He was my teacher. Oh, also. great. Oh, so yeah. we're talking. So we're talking about the same thing. So I remember talking to him about drums in Africa because I've been to Africa and uh, you want to have some type of, are, are these universal norms or uh, is the drum uh, a sacred instrument in Africa where it's Africa? These are all discussions that should have taken place uh, under Father Scaris's direction. But uh, I can guarantee you that the drum in uh, South Bend, Indiana, uh, was uh, 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 an instrument of Dionysian music. And what you ended up doing here was introducing Dionysian music uh, into the worship of Christ and then toning it down a little bit so that it becomes insipid. And basically you wreck uh, whatever reform was going to take place. And once you wreck the reform, once you go that far, there's this longing to simply go back. I, mm -hmm. I mentioned it with the icon, you know, let's just go back mm -hmm. to the icon. Let's forget about Giotto. It's too sensual. Let's uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And you end up going back and using uh, the Tridentine liturgy as a substitute for uh, good music or whatever like the low mass, the low Latin mass, where all you hear is some baby crying the whole time you're in the, the church. This, is, this was an integral part of Irish Catholic experience in America. A man who had my Greek teacher, also his Greek teacher, a guy from Philadelphia, wrote a book called Why Catholics Can't Sing. And he talked uh, yeah, specifically yeah. about- Thomas the, Day. Thomas yeah, Day. Thomas Day, right. He wrote, said specifically, it goes back to the Irish understanding of the mass, which took place in total silence because the English might arrest you for going to mass, that type mm. of thing. That that short-circuited, we, we don't have a, 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 a much of a culture here to begin with in America. It's very fragile. It's ethnically based. The Irish never achieved the, the great achievement in music that the Germans did. Uh, they controlled the church. It was all very fragile, and it got wrecked. 
so the point is not to say, okay, we'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, it's to go back to the sources like the ones I mentioned, and let's start rediscovering sacred music again. Uh, and also, uh, you, you make me think uh, about uh, something that uh, the Nigerian Cardinal uh, Francis Arinze uh, told me, because he was uh, questioning the people that say that uh, dance should be introduced in the liturgy. He say, oh, I am an African, and I tell you that uh, I'm not in favor about uh, this thing. So uh, I think that there is, of course, a lot of... Uh, Uh, political um, uh, work in place when we talk about these uh, topics. Uh, now we arrive at the end of our conversation. So I want to remind you uh, uh, the book uh, of uh, Dr. Jones. The book is uh, The Dangers of Beauty, The Conflict Between uh, Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. And you can find the book in the Uh, uh, website of Dr. Johnson. Maybe you can remind where they can yes. buy the book. Do not go to Google. Do not do a Google search. Do not go to Amazon. Go to culturewars.com. These search engines have all been weaponized to deprive you of your Catholic culture. Go to culturewars.com and you can buy a copy of the book. We ship all over the world. Okay, so uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Jones, for your participation. It is always very um, uh, entertaining and very instructive to talk with you. And I thank also our uh, viewers, uh, the Italian one that, of course, are the most in my channel, but also the uh, English-speaking uh, viewers, because there are also several of them. So I hope you enjoy this program. Uh, if you want to follow my uh, newsletter on liturgy and sacred music, you have to go to cantus.substack.com and you will find uh, this newsletter with uh, content, new content every week, and you can join other hundreds of subscribers. So thank you very much, Dr. Jones, for your participation. And I see you all in our next program. Bye-bye. Thank you.